Amen. How many of you really like when we go back and play some old school hymns of the faith together in Sunday morning, huh? Well, that's the last time we're ever doing it, so I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> the series is called Moses, a story of doubt and deliverance. If you've missed any of the sermons so far, you've missed a lot. They're all available on the app and on the website. We're in the introductory section of Moses' life. It's called uh, Finding God's Plan for Your Life. This is part six. So today the topic is dealing with doubt. As we find out what God has for us, we're going to have to deal with doubt. Uh, we will deal with doubt uh, in our own hearts, and we will deal with doubt when we reach out and try and do God's will and share our faith with others. So if we're not prepared to deal with doubt, uh, we will have a hard time living up to God's plan for our lives. Thankfully, Moses uh, was a doubter, and so he gives us a living, breathing example of what God does when we bring our questions, our doubts, our concerns to him. We're going to do something different at the end of the sermon today. We're actually going to leave a little bit of time for Q&A. So, if you have any doubts, questions, issues, things that have been nagging your heart for a long time, I would challenge you throughout the sermon to write that question down. And then we're going to have mics and you, and I'm going to sit on a stool and answer questions. And this, I came up with this idea earlier in the week. I was really excited about it. But then, about yesterday night, I started really regretting that I said we were going to do a Q&A because I realized that anybody can ask anything. And I'm not yet on mission, so I'm kind of nervous about that. So if somebody could pull the fire alarm at about 12.15, that would greatly help me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm really excited about creating a culture where we feel free to have great spiritual conversations. I'm sure there are some people in this room today who are not Christians, and you have issues, questions, complaints, problems with God. And I would just challenge you. Uh, are you actually willing to ask those questions? Do you even want to see if there's an answer? Or do you just want to hold on to that without any conversation? I would challenge you to do better than that and actually ask a question today. Are you being honest with God about your doubts? Uh, how are you handling your unanswered questions? Let's learn today from the life of Moses uh, how to deal with doubts. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you fill the pages of your book with real people, with real problems, real questions. Thank you for showing us how you respond when people approach you, uh, wanting information, wanting confirmation. And as we seek to find your plan for our lives, show us, Lord, what to do when we face doubt. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, you're going back in time to 1500 B.C., and we are in the middle of the nowhere by Sinai. Uh, there is an 80-year-old shepherd named Moses and a talking bush. Here we are. Uh, we started a few weeks ago uh, on this whole idea of God manifesting his presence to Moses. And we just kind of paused, even though this conversation with the bush may have only been a 10-minute thing. We're spending several weeks asking, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves, our world, from this encounter? So here we are in Exodus chapter 4. We're pretty much picking up where we left off last week. God finishes by saying, So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God's sending Moses to confront the Pharaoh so that the Pharaoh will let the billion Israelites in slavery go. And Moses will lead them out. God tells Moses, you're going to succeed. 
Although it's going to be tough, because Pharaoh's going to say no, and then I'm going to make him say yes. But in the end, you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, Burning Bush, talking to Moses, uh, you'd think that like he would say, let's do this. But Moses was a doubter, <laughs> and he had questions for the bush. So reading on in chapter 4, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Uh, Moses is talking back to the bush and saying, burning bush, uh, they're, they're, no one's going to believe this. Nobody. This is unbelievable. Uh, and Moses is also sharing his own doubts. He's like, I don't think this is going to end the way you're telling me it's going to end. No one's going to believe me. He goes back and tells his wife, uh, or his father-in-law, he says, let me go back to Egypt to find out if my ancestors are alive. He's doubting that they've even survived. So Moses is doubting God's word. He's, Moses is doubting his ability to do what God's challenging him to do. And Moses is doubting the reception he's going to get. They're not going to believe me. I'm having a hard time believing this, and they're certainly not going to believe it. So we see a guy who's struggling with doubt. And we learn here by this encounter how we can deal with doubt. Number one, jot this down and then we'll unpack it. Trust God to prove the truth. Trust God to prove the truth. The fact that Moses is even continuing the conversation means he really wants to know that God can prove what he's saying. Um, the fact that God is allowing the conversation to continue, think about it. God could have just been like, that's it. And he could have turned the bush off and went back up to heaven. And said, so that's what you get when you talk back to me. Right? Like, God could have stopped this conversation, but he allowed it to continue. Um, we learned something about God from this. You can jot this down. The Bible welcomes doubters and skeptics. Uh, the Bible welcomes the conversation. God invites the questions. That's great news. That's great news. Uh, we worship a God who listens to us. We worship a God who can be questioned and sought and called upon. We worship a God who patiently responds when we do bring our doubts to him. That's great news. And, and I don't know if you're a Christian who just has some things you're really wrestling with in your heart, or I don't know if you're a non-Christian who has problems with God, but I can promise you this. God speaks fluent you. But are you talking to him? And are you willing to listen? Or have you closed your ears and said, nothing will convince me? Then I would argue that your problem is not your question, your problem is your defiance. Because you will not let God even talk to you about it. And just admit that, then you're not seeking answers, you're seeking independence from God. But if you are willing, God will respond, because the Bible welcomes doubters and skeptics. Uh, here we see Moses, who's having this conversation with God. We also read in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul was bringing the gospel all around, he arrived at the city called Berea, and it said there that the Bereans were of more noble character because they, uh, they searched the scriptures daily to find out if what Paul was saying was true. They got applauded because Paul came to town and he was like, Jesus is the Messiah. This is, and they're like, whoa, we need to check this out. And they got in their Old Testament and they started checking it. 
That's, that, that's, let, that's doubt. That's like, hold on, let me question this. But guess what? It's rewarded because they were seeking the truth. Um, think of Thomas, right? What did Tom, all the disciples get together. It's a pretty big day. It's the first Easter ever. And Thomas decides to go missing. And so here, all the disciples are, are together. Jesus appears to them. Thomas wasn't there. What, like, what better did he have to do? He wasn't there. So then they all, all of them are like, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. Thomas is like, unless I see him and put my finger in his hand and his side, I will never believe. I mean, doubting Thomas, right? So God made him wait a week. And then Jesus appeared again, right? And then walked over to Thomas and he's like, here you go, here you go, anything else. And then he gently rebukes him and says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Now Thomas didn't need that. He wasn't entitled that. He had plenty of evidence already to go on. But he demanded and God gave him the evidence. Uh, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. What a profession of faith. We see God is a God who will respond when we truly want to know if he's true. Um, this is wonderful because we know that God wants us to hold our faith with confidence. Um, you know, when it comes to our church, I really want people to be able to defend their faith and to know it's true. Uh, that's why we're going to do what we're doing today, having a Q&A at the end. I want you to know that you can have confidence. I hate the thought of our high schoolers going away to college, not being able to defend their faith, because if they can't defend it, they probably won't hold on to it for long. Um, one of the things we're doing as a church to challenge you to grow in your uh, in your, in your uh, confidence in the faith is to read some of the books we have in the bookstore. Uh, we have a bookstore in the gym, and some of those books are designed to strengthen your faith. They're written by people who were atheists or who were of other religions, and um, they're written about things that could strengthen your ability to defend the faith. So we're starting a new thing. Uh, we started last week called the Harvest Pales Book Challenge. Uh, I grew up in the 80s where we had a thing called Book It. And did any of you do Book It when you were, yeah. So, so Book It is you read books and you get pizza. It's brilliant. And I did that. Um, you got Pizza Hut, but hey, as a kid, you didn't care. So, so Harvest Payless has a Book It Challenge. Uh, it, it actually says that on the card. You go to the store. If you read three books at the Harvest Payless bookstore before January 15th, you can come to a deep dish pizza party with Pastor Ryan. The challenge starts today. So go get your Book It card. We don't, should we get the pins? That would make it more fun, wouldn't it? Just put the stickers on them. We'll probably do that. Uh, but hey, I want you to know that we, well, we don't shut down. We welcome the questions and we resource you so that you can have a stronger faith in the Lord. So you can get after that. Number one is trust God to prove the truth. And we see here that the Bible welcomes doubters. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, so Moses is like, they're not going to believe you. Number two, the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? I love everything about this encounter. They're not going to believe you. What's that in your hand? And he's like, God doesn't know what a stick is. Oh. I think God sometimes gives us the easy question, right? What's that in your hand? Stick. One correct. <laughs> I like that. I could get that question right. He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. 
and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I don't know how you imagine Moses, but based on your movie experience growing up, you pictured this man made out of granite, chiseled to be Charles Heston. I mean, the beard and the confidence. I mean, when that snake hit the ground and turned into a snake, Moses was like so slithery and he ran. He ran. Maybe you're not a snake person. My dad hates snakes. Growing up, once for my birthday, a friend gave me a snake in a jar. She just caught it in the field and gave it to me. My dad hates snakes, made me keep it in the garage. Jar tipped over, snake out of the house. Disappeared. Dad threatened to burn the house down and collect the insurance. My dad is not a snake person. If it was up to my dad to go back and pick that snake up, the Israelites would still be in Egypt. I mean, he would not do that. But reading on, <laughs> oh Lord, be careful when you ask God for a sign, right? <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So Moses ran away. And, and he's looking at it. And God's like, pick it up. By the tail. I'm no expert in reptiles, but I've seen Animal Planet. And I know how to pick up a snake, right? And it's not by the tail. If you pick it up by the tail, what happens? You get bit. So, the proper way to pick up a snake is you gotta go at it with a stick and, and you gotta, you know, you gotta put it on its head and then pick it up by the neck, which is a problem. Because you think Moses is gonna pick up another stick based on what's happening with the first one? <laughs> See, so now he's in a dilemma. He can't pick up a stick, you know, so he's just gotta freehand this and he's gotta go up and somehow grab it by the tail. This, who knows, it's probably a, a venomous snake. Like, this is death. And, and yet, God has a sense of humor. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And then God said that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Behold a magic stick. Wow. This is a miracle, and this is a wonder. We learned something about God from this. You can jot this down. God will prove he is present, personal, and powerful. He calls Moses by name. He reveals his presence, and he shows his power through this wonder. God can control animals. Um, we, he made them. He can control them. We know, of course, there are many animals that were controlled in the Bible. A donkey talked. A whale swallowed Jonah. It even says in Jonah, God commanded a worm to chew a vine. God can even make the worms do his will. Um, and uh, there's all the fish swam into the nets of the disciples. A raven fed Elijah in the wilderness. God can control animals if he wants to, right? A little known fact, you know, maybe if you were an Awana kid who went to quizzes, you know this, but demons can control animals too, right? Snake in the garden is an example, and, uh, and demons can control. Remember when the pigs were on the hill and the demons went into them, right? Demons can control animals, but if you're a cat owner, you already knew that. I said it. <laughs> I think demons can even control computers. Seems possessed. But somehow, God turned this stick into a snake. And um, when you share your faith, just understand that God will prove it. Okay? He's not going to turn your broomstick into a snake. So don't try and throw that on the ground in front of your unsaved relatives. You know, clunk! 
Uh, but he, God shows here that he will prove it. Uh, in fact, God tells Moses in advance, your, your mission is really doomed to fail, and so I'm the one who's going to force Pharaoh to see it. God knows that it's up to him to prove it. All you are is the paper boy. All you do is roll the message on the porch. That's it. That's all you have to do. Why don't we share our faith more often? It's because we reason in our minds that I'm going to share my faith and it's not going to go well and they won't believe me, which is just what Moses says. And God's like, that's not even your job. I prove it, not you. You have to trust God to prove that he is present, personal, and powerful. And he will. You're just the messenger. It goes on in verse 6 to say, again, the Lord said to him. So now there's another sign which we learn a lot about humanity here because I'm asking myself, why is there even a second sign? Burning bush shows Moses that he's got a magic stick. Oh, let's go, right? Let's go. But uh, Moses needs more proof. And so will the Egyptians. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. Now again, I'm just wondering what it's like to be Moses. He puts his hand inside his cloak. Now I was Moses. Guess what my biggest fear would be? I'd pull my hand out and it would be a mistake because I'd be like, oh no, I can't run away from this one. <laughs> I'd step on it. I hit it with the stick and the stick turned back into a snake. Like, I don't know what he was thinking, right? But he's like, all right, pull your hand out. And so then it goes on to say, when he put his hand inside his cloak, when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. White, covered with a skin deformity. And Leprosy was a death sentence. We'll find out later when the Israelites gathered and had laws about this, that if you had leprosy, you had to leave the community for good. You were living outside the camp in like a leper colony with other diseased people. And if anyone saw you on the road, you would have to call out, unclean, so that they would stay away from you. A life of isolation, uh, you know, it would eat away at your skin. It would be a very bad death. And this is what God does to the author of the first five books of the Bible. I'm just wondering when Moses stares at that, what he's thinking. And um, then he says, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. God will prove he is present, personal, and powerful. We see God giving evidence. We see God is patient. We see God is proving what he said. We see that he's doing it to raise up an authorized messenger to go and tell other people what's happened to him. We learn so much about God. We learn that God can use the body to persuade the soul. In this case, which is very rare, we see God instantly giving someone a disease and then instantly healing it. That's not the normal way God does it, but he wanted to send Moses an unforgettable sign that it's God who has power over the body. We have some people in this church who had something medically related that God healed, that he did an amazing thing, and everybody's heard about it. There's people in this room who shouldn't be alive, and they are, and it's because God did something supernatural that they're even here. And we have some people who aren't in this room today because they got sick and God took them home. God will sometimes heal. Most of the time, he won't. 
in both cases, whether he heals or whether he allows a disease to afflict, God can still prove his presence and his power through that illness. He can. He's Lord over it all. And God will prove it through the body. Well, it goes on to say this in verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs, hold up. What? What? Check this out. Check this out. Oh, he turns leprous and then starts chasing the children, right? And then, ah, it's gone. I still think it would have been better if he was allowed to bring the burning bush with him, like in a radio flyer or something, but I don't think he was able to. Still, and then God says, if they still don't believe you, what do you mean? Well, we learn about humanity here. We learn about the limitations of the supernatural to convince the heart when the soul is defiant. Uh, jot this down. People will still disregard overwhelming evidence. You can give people, your loved ones, your family, your spouse, all the evidence in the world. And guess what? You'll learn it's not evidence they want. You'll learn they want to keep their kingdom intact, which is just what Pharaoh wanted. So there will be, there will be nobody standing in the presence of God on Judgment Day who says, I didn't have enough evidence. That won't be the problem. The problem will be what they did with the evidence God gave them. People will still disregard overwhelming evidence. It says in verse 9, If they will not believe you in these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And that's pretty amazing. Turn water into blood. God can do water miracles. Can you think of other water miracles in the Bible? Jesus did what? He turned water into wine. What else did he do? He walked on water. Right? He also commanded a storm. Uh, Moses will part the Red Sea. So God made water. He can do with it what he wants. But people will still disregard overwhelming evidence. It really isn't more evidence we want. Often it's God's absence that we want. We just want him to leave our kingdom alone. Pharaoh didn't want more evidence. He wanted his own kingdom. So what an amazing story here. You've got an 80-year-old man with a magic stick who can cause and heal disease and turn water into blood. And we'll see next week that Moses still wasn't convinced. And God continued to talk with him. But let's unpack a few truths from this um, objection. They won't believe me. I have doubts. Number one is trust God to prove the truth, because the Bible welcomes doubters. God will prove it, and he'll, people will still disregard it, though. Number two, jot this down. Know how God proves the truth. Know how he proves the truth. Because again, you think, based on this story, you know, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to throw your broomstick down in front of grandma who's not saved. And no, no, you, you're taking the wrong meaning from this story. We have to know how God proves the truth today. Um, and you can drop this down first. God rarely uses miracle signs and wonders. Fill that in. If you walk away from this story with Moses being like, I can't wait for my miracle, uh, you don't understand miracles. They're miracles because they don't happen, not because they do. And beware the guy on TV who's like a miracle a day promiser, all right? That guy's fraudulent. The, the supernatural will not ever become daily in your life in a miraculous sense. And, and the person who's like, oh, I hear from God every day, he talks to me every day. Yeah, just say no, he doesn't, all right? Because a miracle is a miracle because it's a miracle. It's rare. And miracles and signs and wonders are not supposed to be the common 
way, God convinces people. Uh, some people demand miracles. Where's my miracle? And they don't understand the nature of miracles is not to make you want miracles. The nature of a miracle is to authenticate a messenger who convinces you that what God says is true. All right, so, so if Moses shows up and says, hey, we're all getting out of here. God appeared to me and uh, it's time to go confront Pharaoh. And someone's like, so I get to see a bush? It's like, no, no, you missed it. You missed what I just said. The miracle got us ready for what God is doing. See, the miracle's not the point. So after Jesus fed the 5,000, some people showed up to him and they're like, hey, can we get more magic bread? And uh, Jesus was like, no, no. Like, I'm not here to do tricks for you. Uh, that's not what I'm here for. Herod uh, even wanted Jesus to do a miracle for him. And imagine that. Jesus is on trial, about to be killed. And Herod has wanted to see him for a long time because he thought maybe Jesus would do a miracle. I don't know about you, but if you're on trial and you're going to be put to death and the judge really wants you to do a miracle and you could do one, I think you would do one. Okay? I totally turned the stick into a snake to get off of death row in front of the judge. If I could! And he'd be like, you can't make me not guilty! Not Jesus. He's like, that's not why I do miracles. I'm not here to amuse you. You have to know the point of miracles. Um, the point of miracles is to authenticate the message and the messenger God has sent. If you miss that, you're missing the whole point. Some people demand miracles. Other people doubt miracles are even possible. So, well, that can't happen. How do you believe that stuff? Talking animals and whatever. Um, I would just say this. If there is a God, miracles are possible. And the only way to rule out miracles entirely is to prove that there is no God. And you can't prove that. So you cannot uh, dismiss miracles entirely unless you're prepared to say, I know with 100% certainty there isn't a God. But you can't do that. Because if you know with 100% certainty there is no God, that means you're omniscient, which makes you a God. Oops. So be very careful not to harden your heart and say, there can be no miracles. No, if there's a God, there can be. And um, don't be deceived into thinking miracles are supposed to be normal, and don't be hard-hearted into thinking miracles are never. Okay? They're not normal, and they're not never. I've heard several stories of people who I know and trust who have had supernatural things happen to them. Uh, several stories of doctors saying it's time to say goodbye, and even some cases, turning the lights off in the hospital room for a final goodbye, and then the child gets better instantly, and there's no explanation. I've heard of a teenage girl, of a man I know, who needed a spinal correction surgery, and the doctor said, the best you're gonna get is this percent. When the surgery's all done, the doctor comes out, says, I can't explain it, but we got 100% correction. And the nurse, says, I've never seen his hands work like that before. And there's no natural explanation for what happened. I've heard stories through RZIM of people being chased in a Jeep by the Taliban, a machine gun fire entering the Jeep, and suddenly the Jeep is just out of danger, and it's filled with bullet holes, and everyone in the Jeep survives. And there's just no way that could happen. 
We heard stories of Nabil Qureshi, who was a Muslim converted to Christ. He passed away recently, but his book's in the bookstore. Uh, and signs and wonders and dreams and visions are God's way of getting people's attention. And in um, Muslim nations, very often Muslims who get saved have had a dream about Christ. And Nabil Qureshi had a dream of just hundreds of crosses lit up around him. That didn't save him, but that authenticated that what his friend was saying about Jesus was true. See, and we've heard stories of one of our own missionaries uh, in the Amazon getting stranded in the middle of the night in the jungle, pitch black, and, and a jaguar is prowling around him, getting closer and closer, and he prays and suddenly the jaguar's gone, deciding not to have dinner. And you just say that these things can't be explained apart from God's supernatural activity. There are things in my life. I think there's things in your life that can't be explained apart from God's supernatural activity. And maybe it's not a blatant miracle where it's like, boom, the laws of nature are broken instantaneously, but I think it's even cooler when God does it. You know he did it, and he does it without detection. That, to me, is kind of even cooler than if I saw something. God proves it, no how. He rarely uses miracle signs and wonders. Jot this down next. God's word and his spirit are the most common and convincing evidence. The most common way he proves what he says is through God's word and his spirit. Um, when it comes to Moses, we see that God sent a messenger to the Israelites uh, who told them what God said. So, and then this messenger wrote down the first five books of the Bible for us. So God sent us a, a divinely authenticated messenger to write down a word that we are supposed to believe because it bears his divine authority. So God's word and his spirit are the most common and convincing evidence. Um, if you don't understand that God will speak to you through others, if you need to hear it straight from God's mouth, then you're deaf to the way he's talking to you. Because he'll send messengers. Uh, and that's what the Bible is all about. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word goes forth with supernatural power. It, it describes this book as doing surgery on the one who reads it. It's like, a, it's like a knife. It's like a sword. It cuts through you. God's word has spiritual power. And so God's word is one of the most common and convincing ways that he shares the truth with us. That's why Moses was just not a wonder worker. He was an author. And God had him write this stuff down as a message to you and to me. Uh, God's spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the ever-present witness about Jesus. God's spirit uh, contends with the human heart. God's spirit convicts the person that what you're saying to them is true in a way you can't. Um, God's spirit is the one who seals what you're saying. And the person can't get away from the looming, convicting presence of God's spirit. It's God's personal pressure on, on, the, on the unbeliever's life. This is true and you need it. This is true and you need it. And it appeals at the soul level, showing that what Jesus says is true and that Jesus is the one he promised to be and that there is a judgment coming. God's word and God's spirit are the most common and convincing forms of evidence, and it's sufficient to save anyone. Uh, when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in torment said, 
um, you know, let me go back and warn my family members, right, not to come to this place. And uh, God said, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to that. They need the word of God. Let them listen to the word of God. And the rich man said, no, 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 but if someone goes back to warn them, then they'll listen. And the response of God was, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. And that was true. Jesus was raised from the dead. And guess what? Doubters kept doubting. Because it wasn't answers they were interested in. It was defiance. And, and no amount of evidence will convince the hardened skeptic who refuses to reason with God. So God's word and God's spirit are the most common and convincing evidence. And then next, the resurrection um, of Jesus is the final proof. This whole Moses story, the Red Sea, the slavery in Egypt is one big preview of what Jesus would do. Jesus would show up, like Moses, to set captives free, to release people from slavery. That's you and me. Jesus would show up to lead people through the dark waters of sin and death, to deliver us spiritually. Jesus would lead us to a land of promise. Moses was doing on earth what Jesus alone can do in heaven. And when you have the real thing, when you're like, Jesus, save me and washed away my sins and freed me from sin and, and promised me heaven, you don't need a water feature. You, you don't need a stick to turn into a snake. You're the proof. He wrote it on your heart. The resurrection of Jesus, his living ministry right now in the world, is the final proof. It's the ultimate proof of God's presence and his power and his love. Jesus is alive and he conquered the grave. Wow. I don't need God to give me cancer and take it away. Like, I don't need that. I don't need a talking bush. I've got a Savior in heaven. It's the ultimate proof. And when a life is transformed by a living Savior, and someone can tell story after story of how Jesus saved me, and how he was there with me through my trial, and how his word ministered to me, and, and this person gets the feeling like this Jesus is really alive in you, that's the ultimate evidence. There's a living Savior who loves us. How does God prove his truth? We have to know that so we don't mislead people. God rarely uses miracle signs and wonders, dreams and visions. God's word and his spirit are the most common and convincing evidence. The resurrection of Jesus is the final proof. Do you have a story? Are you saved or are you still confused? Do you still have unanswered questions? I read a story about Steve Jobs in his uh, biography recently about how he died. And he had a conversation with the author about God. He was asked, do you believe in God? Steve Jobs said this, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. He said, for most of my life, I've felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. He fell silent for a very long time. But on the other hand, he said, Perhaps it's like an on-off switch. He said, click, and you're gone. Jobs is a man who died without having answered that question. He died like this. And it's sad to me to watch people who wait too long to get answers to life's most important questions. Maybe you have questions that you have not gotten answers to yet. Maybe you're waiting too long, and it's time to start talking with God about your doubts, because the Bible welcomes doubters. And God will prove to you his presence, his power, and his love. 
Don't be like the people who still disregard overwhelming evidence. Have great spiritual conversations about all the things that trouble you. Now, I am preaching that, and I thought it would be really good and helpful to practice that, too. So right now, we're not done yet. We've left time where we can have some questions, and I can provide, hopefully, some answers. If you've been thinking about a question that you have about God or faith or life or whatever, um, you'll have a chance to come up to one of the microphones that are being set up right now. Um, and this could be a question you have or a question someone you know and love has, uh, but you're welcome to get up and come to the microphones now. The first three people to ask a question will get a free book from our bookstore. So if you like free, uh, then you are welcome to come up to our books, to our mic and ask a question. I also gave people a chance on Facebook to ask some questions this week, too, so I'm going to look and see if anybody did. Uh, we have a few questions here, and I will answer a question that I got from Facebook. Oh, there's some really good ones here. Um, <laughs> one, one person wrote, are you real? Yes. Next question. <laughs> Buddhists would disagree, but yes, I am real. All right, here's a good one. Um, why do terrible things happen to good and or innocent people? How many of you have wondered that before? Why, why do terrible things happen to good and or innocent people? So this is the problem of uh, pain and suffering. One other person asked the question, overcoming grief is hard. How do we find comfort and hope? Um, when it comes to the question of pain, we have to not get logical. We have to get pastoral. Because often these questions are born out of people who are in a fire, right? I mean, this is not the time to start quoting Bible verse after Bible verse. Um, so I would say if you're in a place where you're suffering, if you're in a place where you have pain from your past and you don't know what to do with that, um, I would just say this. The Bible invites us to bring our pain to God. The Bible invites us to bring our pain to God. That's the first step. Um, when you bring your pain to God, you'll learn a few things about him. First, uh, God suffers. God suffers because of us. God suffers for us. And then God suffers with us. That's all seen in the life of Christ. He died on the cross because of us. We have a God who suffers because of us. But he did it for us. And then when he rose again, he said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he suffers with us every step of the way. And where do you find hope? Uh, where do you find peace? You will not find it by following the way of the world, which is to go to the doctor and say, I don't care what you prescribe me. Take all my pain away. That's why we have an opioid epidemic in this country. Because the deal we're trying to make is take all my pain away. God won't, God won't do that. But if you bring your pain to God, he will manifest his presence and his power and his goodness in it. He will. So bring your pain to God. Okay, who has a question? First question. You get a book. That's great. Is your mic on? Good job. What's your name? My name is Luke. Luke. Hi. It's a good Bible name. Yeah, thanks. Um, my question is, when you're trying to make a difficult choice, 
in life, how do you determine if it's, uh, and you're leaning one way or the other, how do you determine if it's God leading you or if it's your own like thoughts or selfishness or anything, trying to make a difficult choice? Yeah, what an awesome question. How do I know God's will? Uh, so off, the way that the world will teach you to discover your purpose in life is backwards compared to what the Bible will say. So the way the world teaches us to make life choices is first, what does your heart tell you? Your feelings. Second, what do your friends say? Third, what do people who have authority in the area you're making a decision say? And then fourth, what does the Bible say or traditional values say? Okay, that's backwards. Uh, what we say is first, what does the Bible say? If it's black and white, don't do this or, or you must do this. You have to obey instantly and it doesn't matter how you feel and it doesn't matter what your best friend says. Okay? So it begins with what God has revealed about himself. Then it moves on to, in gray areas, getting advice. Right? Uh, so maybe the Bible doesn't directly speak to what should I do with the nuclear weapons I have in my basement, right? Nuclear weapons don't show up in the Bible. But there are some pretty clear biblical principles that I can follow to make sure that I don't, you know, uh, blow the country up. Okay? So, uh, you know, and then third, what if it's like truly a gray area? Like what TV program do I watch and don't I watch? Okay, you, you get like... You get some insight from people. Um, you can get some advice from people who care for you. Like, dude, that you know, that's probably going to be ruining your conscience. Or like, what if I have to make a financial decision and it's kind of gray? Okay, so you get somebody who's an expert in the industry to say, here's what I see in the market, and it would probably be best if you did this. So it's kind of like advice, you know, wise advice. And then your feelings and your gut and your personal experiences are the caboose at the end of that process. So uh, what does God word, God's word say? What's biblical advice? What's common advice, like street smarts? And then what is my heart kind of telling me? If you follow it that way, um, you'll have a really good guide to making most choices in life. Does that help? That helps a lot, thank you. Okay, cool, awesome. Who's got another one this time? Hi, hey, Michelle. Um, what do you say to someone who um, says that, oh, I can't, you know, I'm so relieved that they're no longer suffering. Now I'm going to see them in heaven, and you know that they did not quite alike. Wait, I'm sorry. Say that one more time. What do you uh, say? Like, what's the proper response to someone who says, "Oh, I'm so relieved they're not suffering anymore, and I'll see them again in heaven," and you really know that they probably were not? Saved. Oh, okay. So, so somebody loses a loved one, and they're like, "Oh, I'm so glad I'll see them in heaven," but based on everything you know, that person's not in heaven. So and what do you say? Probably the person that's asking the question or that's saying the same. Yeah, so yeah. So you have family members that are not saved. They're talking about other family members that they think are better off. Right, because all the truth people in the room want to say, that person's in hell, so get over it. <laughs> right? Which would be the wrong thing. But all the grace people want to be like, you probably will see them and their cat in heaven. And listen. <laughs> right? So so where do we where do we mediate all that? Um, I would say this. Whenever people are dealing with loss, uh, I mean... I, I'm, I'm always like 99% grace in how I talk to people. So I'll never tell anybody, because I can't, I'll never tell anybody who is and who isn't in heaven. I will affirm what the Bible says about who is and who isn't in heaven. And I, you know, so like when I've had a loved one in my life who died, and I'm pretty sure that person's not in heaven, what I'll say is, hey, I'm just so glad that that person knew the truth about Jesus, and I'm so glad that that person heard all of his life how Jesus died on the cross to save him for his sins. Um, you can also affirm things like, you know what, uh, you know, I'm just so glad that that person uh, stood before a loving God who is perfect in his love for everybody who created. I, I just get such confidence from that. 
You don't have to affirm where the person is, but you can use that as an opportunity to uh, promote the truth. Because frankly, a lot of people just don't know how to process what happens when someone dies. They get all mystical, you know, they, they get all strange in what they're saying. So even narrating for them how you're thinking about that is a big help. So you can say a lot without saying, I don't think that you're whoever is in heaven, you know. Does that make sense? So you, you actually say what you believe, why you're saved then, and assuming that maybe that, that could be the case for them then, you're like kind of saying what you You believe. always leave room. I mean, you always leave room. I mean, we know from, you know, your own experience that people can get saved at the end of the end of the end. So you can't ever say, that person's not in heaven. You, you don't have the authority to say that. So uh, that, I would just say that's not something you have to worry about saying or not saying. What can you say? You can just narrate for a person how you process the death of a loved one. And as they hear that, they might rewrite their script for that. Okay, cool. Somebody on this side? So, I'm what Arzee. is the purpose? Hi, Pastor Bernie. What is the purpose of the miscarriage? Why does God take the children before they make it to know? Wow, that is such a great question. Or we could talk about, do pets really go to heaven? I don't know which one you want to do. I think if, if we want to even expand that question a little more, because I think there's a lot of people who have that, and, it, and maybe it's been a lifelong thing, right? So how does God allow a miscarriage? I think you could even expand that to what happens to a woman who has an abortion, a child in the womb. Right? And, it, and it doesn't go like God intended. And, and what does God do about that? Right? And do their souls go to heaven? Right. So there's whole books that have been written on that. So I can't answer everything. But I would say, what I would say is this. Um, you know, a, a child who is lost before birth or early on in life is a child you have to surrender to the Lord. You, you let that child go into the loving hands. And we know Jesus loved children. You know, we know God loves children. Um, I would I would caution you not to rewrite everything we believe about sin in that moment because that child was not innocent, right? We're all born into sin. So don't start rewriting what we believe about human nature. Uh, our confidence of where a child would go after they die is not in the innocence of the child, but the goodness and grace of God, right? Right? Well, That's our confidence. So we boast born. in the goodness and graciousness of God and the character and everything we know about him. That's, that's where our hope can rest. Uh, so we so we rest in that. When it comes to like, did you know, did that happen for a reason? I just wouldn't get too wrapped up in that. I think that you know we're, we have bodies and we live in a fallen world. And just because you have a miscarriage, right, it doesn't mean that God's punishing you or God's controlling your womb or anything. There's probably nothing more to it than simply a fallen world and an imperfect body. And it's it's pain the Lord wants us to bring to Him, um, but it's not personal. It's not like God's doing something to you because He's mad at you. Does that make sense? Yes. And in a case where you terminate a pregnancy, uh, you do have to come, I would just say this, you do have to come to the truth of that matter and admit what you have done according to what the Bible says. You will have no peace until you do that. But once you do that, you will find so much grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness to take away that guilt and that shame and what's been haunting you forever, uh, that the Lord wants to take that guilt and shame away. He does. And that's not the unforgivable sin. You have to tell the truth. You have to repent of sins. Then we can be forgiven. Amen. Thank you. And if I, Mike was the number third person. So if you want to do three to four. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Somebody pick the wrong mic. Mike picked the wrong mic. Go ahead, Mike. Um, so Paul had a pretty specific conversion moment, and I would say that I was saved specifically in a moment as well. But for based on many conversations I've had with Christians today, I see a lot of people who don't have a specific moment. So my question is, does the Bible preach, teach a specific salvation moment? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the Bible absolutely mandates that you must be born again. So I, I grew up in the church, but I wasn't saved until I was a freshman in college. It was a very identifiable period in my life, although I can't tell you exactly when it happened. I can tell you the period in which God awakened my soul. I heard the truth, repented, and I was born again, right? Um, if you were raised in the church, here's a few hazards you have to watch out for. First of all, never say I was always a Christian. You weren't. You were always around Christians. Um, but you have to, at some point in your life, realize that um, hell is your fault. And there's a place there with your name on it. Because of the way you've lived your life, and it doesn't matter how good you were growing up, hell is your fault, and you deserve to go there. And if you died before you were saved, God would have every right to put you there for eternity. If you somehow have this thought in your mind that you never ever were going to hell, why would you need Jesus? What are you being saved from? If there's just this free pass from an age of innocence to then I got confirmed and so I never had to worry about hell. I don't think you understand the true depravity of your own soul. And that's the way to become a Pharisee. Everybody else needs a savior, not me, because I had a lana sash, you know, <laughs> or, or I had a Calvinette. You know, Calvinettes don't go to hell. Uh, yeah, Calvinettes do go to hell, all of them, unless they get saved. So have a really healthy understanding of what your parents and your church could and couldn't do for you. Um, understand that you, you were born and raised on the precipice of falling into eternal torment forever, and Jesus saved you from that. You won't love him. You won't worship him. You won't serve him and fear him unless you get that nailed down in your soul. When did it happen? Maybe you don't know exactly when. But if it happened, you will have a links in the chain showing that Jesus is alive in you. And if those closest to you, if we were to ask those closest to you, is that person saved? And they have a hard time coming up with immediate evidence that Jesus, that you believe Jesus is alive and that he's alive in you. Uh, if mama don't believe it, then I think you got problems. All right? Because you're fooling yourself. So I would just nail that down and if, if never assume that you probably got saved at some point when you were a kid. If it's as like memorable as a mosquito bite, uh, and you don't have a story, I would nail that down today. Hopefully that helps. We got time for one or two more. All right. Hi, my name is Nicole. Uh, my question is, when you're talking to people who don't believe the Bible, how do you witness to them when they don't believe it is God's authority? Because when I'm talking to my friends, they don't believe that the Bible is true. And yeah. so it's very hard to describe heaven being with a perfect God that you can't go before. And it's it's really hard to help them understand that. And I almost feel kind of hopeless. Like like how you mentioned, it's a defiance thing. And I don't know really how else to explain it if I can't back it with the Bible because they don't believe it. Yeah, that's a great question. So specifically on the Bible, just understand that the Bible is a very easy book to defend. So I would love to hear why they don't believe it. If it's just this intangible nonchalant, yeah. Everybody has their own truth. You can't do much with that because it's not the Bible they have a problem with. It's the idea of truth 
being something that applies to them universally. So you might have to get at their uh, definition of truth, you know, uh, first before you show them that the nature of truth is that it is absolute, right? It can't be subjective. It has to apply to everybody equally. Uh, if they do have specific objections to the Bible, then just get them to say that and then say, well, I'd love to talk to you about that, you know. Uh, so does that make sense? Do you have any, any way to... I just think it's more of a defiance thing. So I feel like God has to work with them. Yeah, and if it is a defiance thing where they, they won't even hear of a book telling them what to do, I would just really uh, dig down on where they get their morals from. The truth is they get them from themselves, but they won't say that. But I would just dig down on how do you define anything as being right or wrong, you know? And, uh, and when they get to the point where if they don't have a standard of truth, what they're saying is that anyone can do anything, then they'll realize their need for an authoritative source of truth. Otherwise, someone can just break into their house, steal all their stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. So we need to agree on an objective standard of truth. Yours is the Bible. What is theirs? And if they don't have one, then what they're saying is they are their own standard of truth. But that's not livable. And that's frankly not the way they're living their lives. See, but you have to kind of expose all that gently and ask God to bring that to the surface. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. That helps. One more. Go ahead, Sam. Well, my question is a rather unique one, um, you know, in the sense that what do people do uh, you know, when they're saved, but they live in a household with people who are not saved. Uh, what are your thoughts and ideas of that? Yeah. What does that look like? It's a good, a good question. That was me. Uh, I was the first one saved in my family. Uh, so how, how is a saved person do I live in my family if they're not saved? Uh, I would say this. Just remember what it took the Lord, uh, you know, in your life to bring you to that realization. Um, and expect that the Lord will hear your prayers for your unsaved loved ones. He will expect that they will watch you like a hawk. And so do not give them reason to discredit the Savior by your actions. Um, if you slip and give in to temptation, that's, that's okay. How you fail will also show them the nature of the Savior you serve. If they need to see someone fail and be forgiven. So don't feel like, I just ruined it. I just ruined it. I'll never listen to you again. Like, it doesn't matter. The whole of the Christian life is a witness to them. You have to be so patient, you know. I mean, uh, everybody knows my mom got saved in this church, you know, but it wasn't until 14 years after I got saved that I had the chance to baptize her. And she literally came to church every week hearing me preach to her. And that wasn't good enough, you know. So it, Mike Kiyowski, one of our elders, had to finally sit down and share the gospel. And I'm like, oh, you listen to him. You listen to his son. <laughs> You know, so just a prophet is, is without honor, you know, in his hometown. Your family likely may not get it from you, but trust that God is ever-present, working and honoring your prayers to save them. I, I kind of have a follow-up question to that, too. Yeah. Is there anything more I can do than, you know, inviting them to church on a weekly basis and trying to witness to them? Anything else that you can think of? Yeah, the, you have to ask God to ripen them to the gospel. The way he does that is he can get their mind ready. They have to know the gospel. Okay. So ask that God gets their mind ready to know the gospel. Um, and then next, you have to get their heart ready so that they don't just blow up and be like, I don't want to hear that. So calm them down. Or if they're just nonchalant, fire them up so that we can actually have a spirited conversation. So the mind and the heart and then the will. 
ultimately it's the will that will hold out, and God can break that. He can use suffering, he can use, uh, he can use the sickness in a person where you get to show them the love of Christ. But I would just say, make sure that you are pouring out both the truth of Christ, so look for those opportunities to talk about Jesus naturally, and show them the love of Christ. Be there, serve them, visit them in the hospital, you know, make birthdays amazing, like really go all out on being a loving person. You know, don't just be cold, you know, with the truth, actually show them everything you know about Jesus, and they will see it. They might not like it, but they will see it. That help? Yeah, thank you. Awesome, thanks. If you have any other questions, uh, all the introverts who need a week to do anything in public, you got a week. We're going to do this again next week. All right, we're going to do it again next week. Is that exciting? Yeah. So if you have any questions, post them on the Facebook page this week, and I'll even answer some of them. Uh, hopefully this is helping us to develop a, a, a communal spirit where we say, hey, we don't just stifle questions, we take them seriously, because God does, and we want to have great spiritual conversations. Amen? Uh, all right, let's all stand and I'll close us in prayer. Father, thank you for Moses. What a real man he was. He was real. He was afraid. He was confused. He was skeptical. Uh, and and you, you dialogued with him. You talked to him, and then you sent him as a messenger to share the truth and to rescue a million people from slavery. Show us your glory, Lord, and I just pray that you would help us to get our questions answered. Show us, O oh Lord, through your word, through your spirit, uh, that you are real, and that you respond when we draw near to you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us divine appointments this week to share our faith with others. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. I'll see you next week. You are loved.